Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Elon Medhavji, and I'll be your host. At every diplomatic summit, in every negotiation, and at every dinner between world leaders, it's been there the whole time, right under their noses. Food. It might also be under your nose right now, too. And that's because food is the common necessity that drives us all. It comforts us, pulls on our heartstrings, and brings us closer to the people around us. Now, while the stakes might not be so high on your end or mine, in the world of diplomacy, when issues of peace, progress, and prosperity are on the table, maybe we need to better understand the power of what's on the menu as well. In this two-course series, we look at the role food plays on the diplomatic stage to figure out why it's such a powerful tool of influence, cultural exchange, and public diplomacy. In today's episode, we explore how heads of state have used gastronomy to express themselves towards other countries. We also get a look at culinary diplomacy in the multilateral sphere and the chefs in the kitchen who make it all happen. To begin, as usual, we're going to need to wrap our minds around what culinary diplomacy is at its core and why it's becoming such a popular topic. It's it's definitely a concept. Once once you've heard of it, maybe it starts to click. This is Sam Chapel Sokol. In 2013, he wrote an article for the Hague Journal of Diplomacy called Culinary Diplomacy, Breaking Bread to Win Hearts and Minds. This is considered by many in the field as the first foundational piece laying the groundwork for the study and exploration of culinary diplomacy. So in a way, understanding culinary diplomacy also means understanding him and what caused Sam to be one of the pioneers of this unique topic. There's, there's food and there's diplomacy. It's using food as a tool of diplomacy. Um, it's not just food though. It's, you know, I use the word culinary to kind of have a more overarching look at cuisine, gastronomy, um, using the food and food and culture as a tool of diplomacy and not just food as calories or nutrients. And I've always worked in and around food, worked in restaurants, back of house, front of house. I've been a cook, I've been a chef and started examining how food is is used really by presidents, heads of state to be effective in, in their diplomacy, both officially and unofficially, whether it's official state dinners or unofficial luncheons or just hanging out late at night with a, with a glass of whiskey, how food and drink can be used to lubricate conversation. Um, so that was really the beginning and, and so we looked at things like sports diplomacy, which I know you've spoken about before, and music diplomacy. And we talked about the use of, of jazz and how, you know, Brubeck, for example, took his band to um, the USSR um, probably in the 60s to, or 50s or 60s to give a taste of what American jazz is like and American culture and how that is the through line or the, you know, the through way for, for cultural education. And nothing that I had found at that time had been written about 
you know, not nothing. I didn't create this out of nowhere, but there had been very little in the academic sphere, this specifically academic space, through the lens of diplomacy, looking at food. So it was a moment to, to take it on. Now already there's clearly so much going on here. What's so exciting to me about culinary diplomacy is that there are a lot of similarities to how food plays a role in all of our daily lives. But what Sam highlighted back then was how it can actually be manipulated at the highest global level. And this can be done remarkably deliberately to serve specific needs of a president or monarch. All it takes is a look back at the historic roots of these ideas to see why food has always played a central role with the world's wealthiest and most powerful. A lot of those origins are in France, and I started exploring how um, diplomats like Talleyrand worked with chefs like uh, Marie-Antoine Carême, uh, Antonin Carême, who was to many in the French, French trained world, the first quote, celebrity chef. He was known as the chef of kings and the king of chefs. Um, he was almost used by, I mean, it was like a tool of the state of both Napoleon and Talleyrand um, to, to get in the good graces of, of the rest of Europe at the time. I mean, he invented the Charlotte Russe, which is named for the Russians. He invented the Gato Nestle Road, I think it's called. And Nestle Road was one of the negotiators from like maybe the Prussians. Um, he really was using food and as a almost subversive tool to convince the other heads of state, the other diplomats at the table to, to listen, to be, to be present. Um, you know, we can talk about diplomacy in the way that at the end of the day, it's, it's hand to hand, you know, it's, it's in a room and it's a couple of people who need to get on the same page. I've studied a lot more food than diplomacy in the, in the past 10 years. And, you know, at base, when you, when you look at food, it's, you eat three times a day, hopefully, or more or less, but you, you have to eat every day to survive. And that's, that's one of the few, unlike, unlike music, unlike sports, unlike art, it's just necessary for survival. So something as deeply viscerally um, human as sitting around a dinner table can have an outsized impact on the things that are happening at that particular table, which in the cases of, <laughs> of treaty negotiations are diplomacy. It's exactly because of this viscerally human aspect that culinary diplomacy can speak to and sway all of us. It's also why this is a story that's as relevant today as it was in the Napoleonic era. Now, when I was listening to Sam's anecdotes, I was immediately reminded of that now, I guess, infamous photo of former President Donald Trump proudly presenting a table full of fast food like McDonald's and Burger King that he was serving to his official guests that evening at the White House. I don't know if you remember that, but make no mistake, just as Napoleon wanted to woo European dignitaries with his specialized dishes, Trump was equally strategic. He chose a, a good old-fashioned blue-collar American menu. And considering the media spectacle that that was and those kinds of events now are, we can be sure that's by design. That was, that was tailored to be relatable to many of the American public and to send a specific message to them. 
So with all these ideas bouncing around, I simply had to dive deeper with Sam on the power of food and the food of the powerful. Kind of on the surface level, food and the use of the use of ingredients, the use of cultural markers has a whole lot of power and a whole lot of sway on a on a both intellectual as well as a as a subliminal level. On the intellectual level, most people who get into the sphere of diplomacy or, or into positions of power care about what they're eating. They have enough money, they have enough power, they have enough wealth to to make those decisions for themselves. So by, you know, by uh, a head of state serving luxury ingredients, caviars and foie gras and stuff shows power, just, just shows I have wealth that I can spend on this meal. And there are numerous examples from history of heads of state just bawling out to show I am powerful. Watch me own this space, you know, the meat halls of Anglo-Saxon yore. It's just like, I'm going to treat you to a feast for seven days because I can. That's power. And it doesn't need anything more than a, a table full of meat and wine. Um, you don't need gold. You don't need like any of the, the shiny things. It's just like, crap, that person just served me an entire roast deer. Cool. They're a powerful person. Um, you know, spices, who could get spices back in the day based on the, on the spice trade? We're talking still in a European context, which always is um, narrow. But if you were serving spices on your table, it showed that you were powerful because they were expensive because they came from, you know, far away, quote unquote. On the, on the subliminal level, the power can also be used to, as a, as a form of, of sway to appeal to some sort of sense of, of childhood or really to get deeply into your brain and say, I understand you. I know who you are. I know the kind of food you grew up with. Um, there's a modern example that I think is quite funny, interesting. Um, during, I think it was the summit between the North and South Korean leaders, maybe in 2018, 2019, but the menu was supposed to be a merger of of South Korean favorites and North Korean favorites. So there was a, a famous cold noodle dish from Pyongyang, quite a few ingredients and dishes from South Korea. But there was one dish uh, on the menu in particular that was rosti, the Swiss potato pancake, because Kim Jong-un studied in Switzerland. And it was like, just that little note kind of feels cheesy in like a biographical sense, but it also shows some like deep understanding standing or, or a little bit of power from the, the producers of the meal to say, we're going to hit you where it counts. We're going to hit you in your heart. There's one key agent of culinary diplomacy that we've yet to touch on, and you just heard Sam talk about them just then, the chef. After all, they're the ones expertly crafting these meals and what they stand for with their own hands. So to better understand the role of the chef, I actually want to focus on an international organization called Le Club des Chefs des Chefs, or we can just call them Le Club. In his paper for the journal, Sam describes them, and I quote, as the summit of culinary diplomacy. And for an organization that's apparently at the summit of this field, I had never heard of them before I studied this topic. 
And I'm willing to bet that you've probably never heard of them as well. And that's because they, they conduct their business quietly, almost like a secretive organization. But in a nutshell, to be a member of this organization, one has to be an active personal chef for a head of state. In other words, you actually have to be the personal chef of a president, prime minister, king or queen to be a part of this club. So today, with over 20 chefs from all corners of the globe, this organization acts as a diplomatic forum, bringing together those that drive culinary diplomacy on the day to day. I was lucky enough to actually speak to the founder and coordinator of Le Club, Gilles Bragard, who brought these chefs together for the first time 40 years ago. And when that happened, for them, that was also the first time that they could ever discuss their unique trade and guardianship of culinary diplomacy with someone else who has the same job. So as I listened to the story of how Le Club was founded and developed, I couldn't help but see how Gilles was unknowingly planting seeds at the time that Sam would harvest and combine decades later. Um, you know, when, when I uh, organized the first meeting of the chef, it was just a, um, a question of friendship. You know, uh, I knew some chefs of head of state and I realized that they didn't know each other. And I thought it would be nice, you know, to, um, to organize such meeting. At the same time, you know, there was the first uh, G7 meeting. Uh, and, you know, in my head, uh, I thought, you know, why their boss are meeting and why the chef could not meet. Because at that time, you know, the chef of the head of state were, were really unknown. They were working uh, really in, in the back of the kitchen. <laughs> and <laughs> nobody know the 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 the, the, the very important role they play. Uh, they play in, in gastronomy, but also in, uh, in diplomacy. Uh, so the first meeting was really a meeting of friends. You know, it was the first time they were meeting each other. So they had a lot of uh, uh, things to, to tell and they realized they were doing exactly the same job said in, in, in Washington, in Berlin, in, <laughs> in Paris. <laughs> And uh, uh, at the, the end of the meeting, they just tell me, oh, we should, uh, we should meet again, well, because we had such a good time. Uh, but the first time it was not a question of, of diplomacy. It, it was diplomacy. Diplomacy is trying to, to, to make friends, you know, and to, to make friends in, in the different country. And we, um, uh, we decided to meet each year, and it's why the club was, uh, was created. And uh, uh, three years later, you know, the meeting was in, uh, in Stockholm, and the chef of the king, Carl XV, this time, said the king would like to, to, to meet you, uh, to meet the chef. Uh, so it was, you know, uh, for us, it was a big step because the, the royalty, you know, was... <laughs> considering that the club was something important. And uh, uh, since that, you know, the, we had a, an official uh, function. Uh, so we, we, we did a, a legal or, uh, organization and we, uh, we said that each year we will meet and we will try to, uh, um, to let the people know about, you know, the, the importance of, uh, of gastronomy. Uh, importance, you know, uh, in the country himself, because these chefs, you know, they 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 have to uh, to promote the local product. They have to promote the the, the local uh, kitchen, uh, but it's so outside, you know, outside in when they receive, you know, a dignitary from other country. Uh, it's very important, you know, that there is a nice atmosphere around the table, and it's uh, it's uh, 
not a big step, but it's small steps. But I think diplomacy is made of small steps, you know, and uh, and and uh, gastronomy is one of them. And and and, uh, um, and now you know that the gastronomy diplomacy is something that uh, is uh, <laughs> uh, you find in university. You have a lot of students working on that, and it's it's nice. Um, and uh, uh, you know, slow by slow. The, the gastro diplomacy became a, a, a reality, and we had uh, we had a role, you know, at the beginning because I think we have been the first to talk about that, uh, and we are very happy, you know, that that now this uh, we, we consider gastronomy as a part of uh, of diplomacy. Over the years, what started as a friendly social gathering turned into an official international organization that conducts annual state visits with world leaders, mobilizes grassroots charities, and connects the most powerful kitchens in the world. But when Gilles was gradually putting this together throughout the 1970s and 1980s, I don't really think he had any explicit diplomatic ambitions. For Sam, however, he only picked it up in the 2010s after Le Club had already existed and established itself as a diplomatic actor. So this means that his view of Le Club and the chefs within it can be perhaps seen easier through a culinary diplomatic lens. His take is definitely worth listening to as well. The Club des Chefs de Chef is a remarkable, you know, I'm going to go on two different tracks here, two paths here. The Club des Chefs de Chef is a remarkable organization um, for multiple reasons. One, one that it brings together people who don't really have much ability to be within their own profession. I mean, once you're a chef at the White House or the, the, the Royal Palace, you don't get to interact with folks from your own profession too much, except within your own workspace. You're not blogged about, you're not on Instagram, you know, nobody is, you might be the best chef in your country, but you don't have a Michelin stars. Um, you know, I think Christetta Comerford at the White House could throw down with any other chef in DC. She's an incredible chef, but she's not getting eater write-ups every week or anything. You know, nobody knows what she cooks except for the very few. So the Coup de Chef de Chef allows for camaraderie in a way that most of these chefs don't have, don't have that, you know, that, that group or team to really connect with. For the past seven years or eight years, Gilles has made a point wherever the club, the club goes, they work some charity into their visits, um, whether it's cooking for you know, a soup kitchen or fundraising for a school, or I know they did a lot of work um, in Japan after the nuclear disaster at Fukushima to rebuild faith in ingredients from, from Fukushima, um, which is a huge task. Um, so that's a very dynamic aspect of the club. They're using their power, they're using their voice. It's not just a fun social club. It's a social club. It's a club with impact that they're trying to use their power to lend a voice or to support other causes. And I think that can't be under, understated. Like that, that's really incredible. As Le Club becomes more familiar to me, its structure as an international organization makes more sense. Not unlike the multilateral bodies we might be more used to, like the UN or the EU, 
This group also fulfills a variety of roles globally. In terms of traditional diplomacy, it connects the chefs responsible for crafting the cultural diplomacy and soft power tools disguised as food. It facilitates best practices between states who host similar events like summits and dinners. And it even connects public diplomacy outreach through external campaigns and charity work. But how have these developments impacted the chefs themselves? Has it made them better at culinary diplomacy? We tried to, to, uh, 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 to persuade them, you know, of the um, important role they play uh, and to, to, to give them uh, not the keys, you know, but just to, to, to tell that when, when you are working in such, uh, for such dinner uh, diplomatic meetings, uh, you, you, you must do your best and you, and you have a, a role to play. And they, uh, they really now consider, you know, their, uh, the importance of, uh, of that, uh, of that job and, uh, the fact that they communicate between them, you know, we say that, uh, uh, we, we have, I created what I call the blue telephone. The blue telephone is a direct line between, <laughs> between the chef, <laughs> between the club. And when, when one of their bosses coming to visit the other one, you know, they, they speak themselves to themselves. And before it was going through the diplomatic uh, way, you know, to know what is the, you know, the favorite dish or what, uh, uh, and also to know about uh, the, the religious uh, problem, you know, uh, that, that's important too. And sometimes they got the answer from the, from the diplomatic way after the dinner. <laughs> and now it's direct, you know. And they 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 can they they know exactly what uh, the head of said it the day before, or what uh, what he would like. What uh, and it's uh, it's very you know, you know something is is it's important you know to have this this direct connection. And I'm sure and I, I say always that if the the head of state had the same relationship as the chef of the head of state, I think the world would be wonderful because there's never never a problem you know because in each in each of the country you know they are they are the first one they are the, 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 the there's only one <laughs> and, and we don't make any difference between uh, you know smallest country uh, or big country you know the president of the club is Christian Garza with the chef of Monaco you know the prince of Monaco this is the smallest state you know, you know? And it's an image that he is the president of the club, you know, of this uh, prestigious uh, club. Uh, and um, we had also something which was very uh, uh, important, and we tried to do it, you know, it's to uh, to give, you know, uh, to, to, to help, you know, all the peace uh, action. Uh, some years ago, you know, we did in Israel, we did a, a, a charity dinner for Shimon Peres Foundation. It's a foundation uh, that tried to get to, together the young Palestinian and the young Israeli in sports club, in the holidays camp. And, uh, and I said, okay, I, we, 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 we left to do this, but uh, I would like that half of the chef would be Palestinian or the, 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 the cooks who will help our chef to prepare would be half Palestinian and half Israeli. And they say, okay. So we did this. It was, you know, the atmosphere in the kitchen was really fantastic, you know, to have. Uh, and this 
the, for, for me, I could say after, you know, that uh, it was the, the, the first time that Israeli and Palestinian uh, were wearing the same uniform, uh, which is the, the chef coat, which became, you know, a symbol of, of peace. Uh, but, you know, in that way, it does not, uh, after that, you know, the peace was not there, but it's, as I told you, it's small, small, small. But it's not not easy <laughs> in 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 this big uh, you know when there's big conflict. But you know for 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 many countries you know I think it's important to uh, uh, to, to to put food uh, you know to, to consider food as a very important uh, a part of uh, of meeting people and and, and doing peace. <laughs> With head of state chefs now able to freely communicate and represent their work to the world beyond their kitchen, perhaps they're more in touch with the impact of their work on their bosses, their international guests, and the general public. These are ideas that Sam's also been dealing with and grappling with, but he actually has the personal experience to back that up. Now, before we hear from him again, it's worth pointing out that Sam's experience is not only academic. He himself was a pastry chef in the White House. And this is what allowed him to tap into the psyche of culinary diplomacy from the inside out. So when Gilles came knocking with Le Club and wanted to come visit the United States several years ago, Sam worked with them on their state visit and gathered some thoughts along the way. I worked with Gilles in 2013. Um, Le Club visited the United States, uh, started in New York, and then we went to DC. So we, we went to the UN, we went to the White House, we hung out with big name chefs in both cities. But one of the most impactful moments of that trip for definitely for myself, but for almost all the chefs I spoke with, and it was 23 chefs, Canada, the UK, India, um, many, many Italy, other countries. The most impactful moment was a visit to a community of farmers in Amish country in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, I had done a legwork months earlier to meet this community and talk to them about what a coursed meal was. And um, I don't know what people know from outside the United States about the Amish community, but they're very insular. And many of them don't use any sort of technology. So my phone calls would be going to a phone in a barn. And every morning that the farmer would go check the messages on that barn phone and get back to me when he was literally standing next to the phone in the barn. So it's not as if and then I had to be next to my phone that second he called or else I would miss him. Um, so they put together a five course meal for us, which is the first time like, they usually serve um, what was once French style, uh, everything on the you know old school, everything on the table at the same time, shared plates, but they were intrigued by the idea of doing this coursed, this coursed meal. So it was fat. It was fabulous. It was incredible. It was, it was traditional meals, traditional Pennsylvania Dutch style dishes. And it was food that the chefs had never tasted and the food that chefs would never have a chance to taste outside of this barn in, in rural Pennsylvania, because it's not restaurant food and it's not home food for any of them. And they would have no other opportunity to meet an Amish person because of the insular nature of the community. So that, you know, who knows if that filtered back up into their own cooking, but it certainly filtered back up into their own awareness of the world. And when you're at that level, it's hard to reach any other level without being treated like the celebrity you are. Um, 
but they can then disseminate that. And um, I don't know that, that, that felt, it felt like they were on the same level, the, the executive chef of the white house with, uh, with a, a Amish farmer in rural Pennsylvania. They were, that was track three. That was citizen to citizen <laughs> at that level. Sam raises a great question here about how this cross-cultural exposure filters up to the work of the chefs and the respective heads of state. This also makes me wonder what these presidents and monarchs must be thinking about this club of chefs getting together to discuss how they serve their interests. And when you think about it just a little longer, a president and their chef probably meet several times a day, and they truly are involved in the everyday lives and well-being of that leader and their entire family. So in a way, it must be quite an intimate setting. This means that we must examine this relationship between a world leader and their chef, which, you know, ultimately is the relationship that determines the success or failure of a country's entire culinary diplomacy efforts. So considering the secrecy of what goes on behind closed doors, the secrecy of Le Club and the complete lack of public information on this, I once again find us really lucky to be able to lobby these ideas to Gilles Bagard, who actually spends much of his time as the middleman between many of these relationships. In each country, it's a bit different, you know, because most of the time, uh, the chef had a very, very close relationship to the, to the head of state. Uh, Sometimes you know it depends if the if the the head of state is a gastronome, it's you know, sure that the relationship is stronger. If sometimes you know head of states are not fond of food, you know it's like uh, in, in the life you have friends who like food and friends who, who are not so interested in that. Uh, but you know that chef is part of the of the of the of the personnel uh, staff uh, of the head of state. Uh, but also, with the, <clears throat> they 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 spend holidays together. You know, when when the, the head of state on holiday, there's always the chef or one of the chefs. You know, uh, look, looking o- o- over them, and uh, it's sure that the chefs, you know, can uh, not influence the head of state, but he, he has a direct access. And uh, I know, you know, a, a friend of mine who is uh, close of one of the, the presidents, you know, told me that very often he tells the president what he think. <laughs> what not what he's saying, but what the people think, you know, because when they go out of the palace, they are in their normal life, you know. And uh, uh, sometimes, you know, when there are so many people, you know, and uh, the administration that the president is, is a bit alone, you know, and, and uh, uh, the chefs sometimes are, are, uh, are close to the to, to the head of state and can communicate directly with them. And uh, uh, it's also, you know, an important role they uh, they play. The, the the relationship which is uh, important between. No, the, the, the family, just because there is the chef, but there is also the family, the family uh, of the, especially you know in royalties, uh, not, not so much in, uh, in democracy, uh, but in royalties, you know the chef is uh, taking care of, uh, of of the family, of the kids, uh, of the dogs, <laughs> sometimes you know, and um, I, the, the the chef of. Uh, the chef of the King of Sweden, 
one of the chefs uh, died some years ago. You know, he had cancer and he died. It was, and I went to the to the funeral in in Stockholm in the Royal Chapel, and the family, all the family, were there. And uh, you know, they were so sad. And the princess, you know, they were really like. And I I could talk with them after, and they told me it, it was like a like an uncle for us, you know, because sometimes the parents, you know, are traveling and not there, and the chef was. <laughs> At this end, and they were going very often to play in the kitchen with the chef and to to to, to prepare food and, and uh, you know is is they are really very close most of the time. You know, it's why they they are important people, but they um, they want to stay behind the scene. You know, uh, they they are not they don't make any politics. <laughs> Uh, they just make food. They make their their, their job. And when uh, you know when the president changes, you know most of the time the chef stays. Uh, and I always say that, uh, and uh, they have to adapt them, you know, to the to the new uh, to the new president. And uh, it means you know it, it's a sort of stability, <laughs> you know, when there is a change. Look at the White House, you know, Christetta. Former Ford, she's there since uh, since the Clinton, you know, and uh, she was, she can go from Democratic to, <laughs> to Republican. Uh, you know, they are they are chefs, you know, they are not uh, politicians. At the beginning of this episode, we started with the basic idea of what culinary diplomacy is and why it's been so important throughout human and diplomatic history. Hundreds of years ago, the same dynamic between kitchen and capital was being harnessed to influence hearts, minds, and stomachs. And it's for this exact reason that I find it so interesting that Sam's seminal work laying the groundwork for academic thought on this field only surfaced in 2013. He's clearly shown that food, much like other softer powers of sport and music, is so deeply rooted in human emotion and behavior that it's actually sometimes as undetectable as it is powerful. So when speaking to him in 2021, I couldn't help but ask him to reflect on the past eight years and to hear if there's anything that we can learn from this about the wider role of diplomacy and how countries and leaders relate to one another. I think a really valuable lesson, this might be too small of an answer for your big question, but a really valuable lesson I learned from two of the chefs in the club, one was the chef of the King of Sweden, I believe, and one was Chris Comerford of the White House, Christetta Comerford, is the use of kind of the idea of what diplomacy is and maybe specifically cultural diplomacy is and could be and how different countries, different heads of state, different angles on, on diplomacy ref reflect through food. Chris Comerford, she will always do a deep research about the country, you know, a visiting country, a visiting head of state. And she'll always incorporate that cuisine into her own meal. So if she's hosting the French president, she'll clearly use French technique um, and French ingredients and use French on the menu. And there will be a lot of effort to marry French and American history um, 
anywhere. You know, we, I, I was working at a, a, a also used to be a pastry chef at the White House many years ago. Um, we had a dinner for um, had the heads of state of pretty much the whole continent of Africa. It was 50 heads of state. So the chefs did their best to research the kinds of cuisines and the kind of people they were hosting that day and, and put little references here and there to cuisines from all around the continent in order to show that we were there with them, but it was also American food. It's American food with these nods to the history of, you know, of slavery, of migration, of everything that goes into what those, those cuisines are. Sweden doesn't do that. He might, you know, the chef, I, th I think it was Chef Magnus. I need to go back. Um, he does the research. He knows who he's feeding, but he says, you're coming to Sweden. You don't want your own food. You want our food. Like we're going to be, and, and not in an annoying, not in an obnoxious jingoistic way, but in a proud national way. Like there's something we're known for. It's gravlocks or it's rye bread or whatever it is that, that he wants to, to show off from this season. If you're coming from Japan, I'm not going to serve you a dashi or, you know, something with, with miso in it. Like, why would I do that? That's not my food. And I don't know anything about it. I'm going to serve you what I know. So though that shows a huge range of how diplomacy can be done. It shows that you can personalize it to reach the other in a way that brings them in and gets them deeply in, deeply involved in the shared story or you can bring them in by bringing them into your story. And maybe that's a big power versus smaller power type of type of conversation where the United States has the ability, you know, or it would seem too jingoistic that the United States was like, damn it, we're just doing American food, which also has a huge amount of range of influences from all around the world and all around, all around uh, the country. But Chris could just say, yeah, we're doing ribs or we're doing burgers or, you know, that's what LBJ did. LBJ fired his French chef because who was Kennedy's chef, Lyndon Bain Johnson fired him because he was like, all I want to do is serve Texas food. I don't need a French chef to serve Texas food. So that's one way to do diplomacy. And the other is, you know, this the kind of Swedish model, if we will, is to say, we don't need all that. I'm going to show you what I, what I do best. And can you extrapolate that to the field of diplomacy or, or, or broader? Maybe. Culinary diplomacy, much like many of the other topics this podcast has touched on, will never have the certainty of a natural science. But it's really worth mentioning that the maybe that Sam is talking about has resulted in an explosion of academic, journalistic, and documentary interest in food's role in politics and cultural exchange, especially over the past decade. And we're only beginning to realize how to really think about gastro manipulation for the purpose of seducing and building bridges between the world's most powerful people. I hope this episode has shed some light on how the international stage mobilizes its desires and interests through food and how actively that process takes place. 
join me next time for part two, where the focus shifts towards culinary diplomacy being used by countries to sway the masses of citizens they feed, including you and me, to sell ideas about their state identity and culture. We also ask how food can heal wounds of conflict and difference by bringing people together at the table. Thank you.